On the afternoon of Wednesday, October 12, 1998, Aaron Kreifels was riding his bike aimlessly through the vast open fields surrounding Laramie in Wyoming. It was a cool day which followed an even colder night and a gentle breeze blew over the land. But this is no fairy tale, and even in the rural landscapes of cowboy country, monsters are lurking. Aaron looked over to his left and thought it was strange that a scarecrow had been strung up along one of the fence lines. After all, there were no crops to protect out there, at least not at that time of year. There was something about the scarecrow that made Aaron look closer. Maybe it was the awkward tilt of the head, or maybe it was the lack of movement, even in the breeze. Either way, Aaron rode his bike closer and closer until he realized that what he was looking at was no scarecrow. It was the body of a man, strung up on the barbed wire fence just like, well, just like a scarecrow. As Aaron got closer, he noticed tiny, shallow movements of the man's chest as it rose and fell ever so slightly. He was alive, but only just. His head and face were completely covered in blood except for two small tear tracks running down his swollen cheeks. Aaron raced to the closest neighbor's house to call for help. What Laramie was about to discover would change the nation forever. This is Monsters. Matthew Shepard was born on December 1, 1976 in Casper, Wyoming. His parents, Judy and Dennis, were excited to welcome their first child into the world and five years later they added another son, Logan, to complete their family. Matthew was always a sociable boy who never had trouble making friends. He was kind and accepting and the first to help out a friend in need. But as his peers grew taller and stronger, Matthew became the target of bullying due to his lack of athleticism and relatively small stature. Even as an adult, Matthew was just 5 foot 2 inches tall and barely over 100 pounds. With his blonde hair and narrow set shoulders, Matthew had an air of fragility about him. Still, his physical appearance didn't seem to worry Matthew and he rarely complained about the taunts. His father would later describe him as, quote, an optimistic and accepting young man who had a special gift of relating to almost everyone. He was the type of person who was very approachable and always looked to new challenges. He had a great passion for equality and always stood up for the acceptance of people's differences. From a young age, Matthew was clearly intelligent and excelled in his studies. When he was a teenager, the Shepherd family moved to Saudi Arabia for Dennis's job. There were no English schools where his family was living, so the boys began attending an American international school in Switzerland. During that time, Matthew began to study German and Italian and tried his hand at theater which he thoroughly enjoyed. But Matthew's true passion was politics, which he had become interested in as a child. So it was no surprise that when he eventually enrolled in university, he chose a political science degree with a minor in languages. 
He aspired to be a human rights advocate, and there was every indication that he would achieve his goal. He achieved straight A's, rarely missed a class, and appeared to be a dedicated student. But all of these beautiful characteristics about who Matthew was, his hopes and his dreams, would be stripped away from him in his death. Matthew's murder would come to be defined by something which should have been irrelevant to his story. Matthew was gay. Shortly after Matthew graduated from high school, he told his mother Judy that he thought he was gay. Right away, Judy assured Matthew that she loved him exactly how he was. His father had a harder time coming to terms with his son's revelation, but they both reassured Matthew that he would always love him. There was no drama attached to Matthew's coming out, and while it was surely a defining point in his life, it was as positive as he could have hoped for. After years of questioning his identity, Matthew finally felt like he could live as the person who he truly was. In reality, Judy was actually grateful to finally understand what was going on with her boy. She had noticed that he had been depressed and not acting like his usual cheery self. By coming out, his mother hoped he would return to the carefree young man she had raised. The darkness that Judy was worried about wasn't because of his sexuality, though. It was the result of something much more sinister. When Matthew had begun attending the international school, he and two of his friends had decided to book a vacation to Morocco, but it turned out to be far from the trip they had dreamed of. It had actually turned into a nightmare for the trio. In Europe, there are very loose rules around drinking ages, whereas in the United States, where Matthew had come from, the drinking age was 21. So it's no surprise that the guys were excited to make the most of the nightlife while on their vacation. One night, they went out drinking, but after returning back to where they were staying, Matthew decided he wasn't done yet. He left on his own to visit a coffee shop, but after a while, he realized it was no fun without his friends and he began walking back to the hotel. On the way, Matthew was set upon by a group of six local men who beat and robbed him. Each of these men also raped Matthew. It was his first taste of violence, but it wouldn't be his last. Despite filing a report with the police, no suspects were ever identified and his attackers were never brought to justice. The assault was as traumatic for Matthew as it would have been for anyone. When he returned home, he was plagued by flashbacks, paranoia, and depression. He began to experience violent daily panic attacks and eventually suicidal thoughts. No matter how much therapy he got or how many strategies he tried, Matthew never seemed to be able to escape from the brutal physical and emotional side effects of having been beaten and raped. So, in a quest for something that would help numb his emotions and stop the thoughts that were repeating in his mind, Matthew began to experiment with alcohol first and then drugs. At first, it was just a little bit here and there, but in no time, Matthew was addicted. It's not hard to understand the appeal. For the first time since the attack, he could choose to feel nothing at all or feel joy and elation. These feelings had all been stolen from him by those monsters in Morocco. With all of the turmoil he was experiencing, Matthew decided to return to the United States. But he was a changed man, and not in a good way. He was struggling with his mental health, his addiction, and his identity. Despite his parents' acceptance of his sexuality, by the time he enrolled in university, 
Matthew had experienced his fair share of discrimination. He had attempted to go to college in his hometown, but there was too much judgment for a young gay man in cowboy country. Next, he moved with his best friend to Denver, but he couldn't find his feet there either. Eventually, he moved to Laramie to attend the University of Wyoming. It was where his parents had both gone, and they encouraged him to try it out. Right away, Matthew knew he had made the right choice. Initially, at least, it seemed like the perfect halfway point between the big city life of Denver and the small town feel like Casper where his family had lived. The area had a large community of LGBTQ plus folk and it seemed safe and accepting of people's differences. Matthew became a member of the LGBTQ plus student organization and passionately fought for the rights of his peers who had experienced the same judgment that he had. All the while, Matthew continued to struggle with his drug addiction. Sometimes he could go for weeks without, but eventually the urge always returned and he chased another escape. Along with the struggle to overcome his addiction, Matthew was also plagued by another concern. Sometime during his first year at college, Matthew found out he was HIV positive. On the evening of October 6, 1998, Matthew met up with some of his friends at his favorite local hangout, a bar by the name of Fireside. While the town of Laramie was relatively accepting of homosexuals at the time, there were only a few bars that Matthew considered to be truly gay-friendly, and this was one of them. He sat in the bar, watching while karaoke night unfolded, and one by one his friends decided to leave. But in a disturbing display of deja vu, Matthew wasn't ready to call it a night, and he decided to stay a little while longer. Not long after being left on his own, Matthew was approached by two men, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. The trio got to chatting and seemed to hit it off. Matthew was single and a friendly and talkative guy. Nothing wrong with that. But after a couple of drinks, Matthew decided to call it a night and head home. Aaron offered to drop him off and they left the bar together and walked to the truck Aaron had borrowed from his father. Not long after getting into the truck, Matthew realized these weren't two men. They were two monsters. See, Aaron and Russell weren't gay. In fact, they despised gay people. It made their blood boil that gay men walked freely upon the earth. And rather than figuring out what those feelings were about, they decided it was their responsibility to eliminate all the queer people in their town, one by one. Unfortunately for Matthew, he was the first target of their hateful rage. Matthew was sitting in the back seat with Aaron while Russell drove. Rather than turn toward Matthew's home, Russell drove the truck out into the remote wilderness surrounding the town. Somewhere along the way, Aaron flew into a rage and began to spit vile obscenities into Matthew's face. While they were still in the vehicle, Aaron began to lay into Matthew with his fists. After arriving at a deserted spot in the middle of an empty field, Russell and Aaron dragged Matthew out of the vehicle. They stripped him of his keys, wallet, and shoes and beat him even harder. They paid special attention to his genitals and pistol-whipped him over the head more than 18 times. When they asked him if he could read the number plate on the truck and he replied that yes he could, they hit him again and again. All the while, Matthew begged for his life. 
He told them they could have anything he had, but they weren't finished yet. Matthew was already beaten and bloodied and barely conscious. Still, it seemed Aaron and Russell thought more could be done to beat the gay out of him. They dragged his lifeless body to a fence, tied his hands behind his back, secured him to the railing, and beat him again. They watched as the life trickled out of his body. After a while, the two men calmly got back into the truck and left Matthew to die. Matthew would spend the next 15 hours in that position. After Russell and Aaron left the scene, they decided to stop by Matthew's house. They had all of his keys, so stealing whatever they wanted would be easy. But on the way there, they drove past two men who were slashing tires for fun. They stopped the truck and started a fight with the pair. Aaron used the same gun he had beaten Matthew with to crack open the head of one of the men, causing severe blunt force trauma. The police were called and when an officer arrived, he apprehended Russell while Aaron ran off in the opposite direction. After a short manhunt, they found and arrested Aaron and the two men were placed into custody. Aaron was eventually transported to the hospital for treatment of a head injury along with one of the guys he had attacked. Both Aaron and Russell were known drug dealers, so the police also impounded their trucks, one of which was the one used to transport Matthew. They hoped to find some evidence to lock the pair up for drugs, but instead, they found Matthew's shoe and a credit card in his name. At that stage, Matthew still hadn't been discovered and the items were set aside as evidence. Later that day, local student Aaron Kreifels stumbled upon Matthew's beaten, bloodied, and burnt body, still tied to the fence. After trying to free the man, Aaron called the police. He recalled how Matthew, quote, sounded to me like his lungs were full of blood. He was breathing hard. The first officer on the scene commented, quote, The only thing I could see was partially somebody's feet and I got out of my vehicle and raced over. I seen what appeared to be a young man, 13, 14 years old, because he was so tiny, laying on his back and he was tied to the bottom end of a pole. I did the best I could. After calling for an ambulance, she attempted to free Matthew, but his hands were tied so tightly behind the fence that she couldn't get enough leverage to cut him free. When she bent him forward to get better access, he stopped breathing and she was forced to return him back to the original position. When the officer finally released him from the ropes, she tried to comfort him while they waited for help to arrive. She whispered to him, quote, Baby boy, I'm sorry this happened to you. Matthew was in a coma, and so he was transported to the local hospital before being transferred to an advanced trauma ward in Fort Collins, Colorado. His medical assessment found that he had suffered fractures to the back of his head and in front of his right ear. His head injuries included severe brainstem damage, which meant his body was no longer able to control his heart rate, temperature, or the functioning of his major life support organs. The night that Matthew was left outside, the temperature was near freezing and the vast flat prairies of Laramie had provided no protection from the elements. His face and body were covered in lacerations. To relieve pressure on his brain, doctors inserted a drain and he was put on a ventilator which breathed for him. His parents were notified of the attack and had to get on the next available flight from Saudi Arabia to be with their son in the fight of his life. When they arrived, however, 
doctors sat them down and told them the devastating news. Matthew's injuries were too severe to operate on. He was going to die. It was just a matter of when. On the day Matthew was taken to the hospital, two of his best friends reached out to the Associated Press and local gay organizations to notify them of the attack and their friend's sexuality. From day one, friends and family labeled the assault as a hate crime and stated that Matthew was targeted because he was gay. Officials investigating the attack agreed and as words spread about Matthew's condition, candlelight vigils were held around the world in the hopes of bringing light to an otherwise closeted issue, targeted attacks on people simply because they were gay. Matthew remained on life support for six days before passing away on October 12, 1998. He was just 21 years old. Overnight, Matthew's murder became a symbol for gay rights and protection against violence for LGBTQ people. The day Matthew died, President Clinton commented, quote, In our shock and grief, one thing must remain clear. Hate and prejudice are not American values. As news of his death spread around the world, a star-studded vigil was held on the steps of the U.S. Capitol building. Ted Kennedy and Ellen DeGeneres attended the event while Elton John sent flowers to Matthew's funeral, and Barbara Streisand phoned the sheriff's office demanding action in bringing his killers to justice. Matthew's funeral was attended by more than 1,000 people, but there were some unwelcome guests who used his send-off to spew their own vile beliefs. Members of the staunchly homophobic and hateful Westboro Baptist Church picketed outside of the funeral. Their disgusting signs read, quote, God hates fags and, quote, fag mat burn in hell. I can't understand how even if those disgusting views were truly what you believed in, how you could think on any level it's okay to stand outside someone's funeral and tell his family that he's going to hell for being gay after he's already been brutally tortured and murdered. And on top of that, these people believe they're the good guys. <sighs> To counter the protest, Matthew's friends dressed as angels. While his family and the nation mourned, investigators jumped into action to try and solve one of the most high-profile crimes of the decade. There were multiple footprints, tire tracks from a truck or SUV, blood and fibers. In fact, officers on the scene commented that the person or persons involved in the attack must not have cared about being found out because of all the evidence they left behind. They quickly identified which footprints were Matthews and that there were at least two other prints which didn't belong to him. It took just a few hours for the police to connect Matthews' attack with Russell and Aaron. Remember, they had been caught fighting the two guys who were slashing tires. Officers had then discovered personal items belonging to Matthew in their truck. But by the time the two incidents were connected, Russell had already been released from custody while Aaron had been transported to the hospital for his head injury. Now, they were the prime suspects in Matthew's attack. The day after Matthew was found tied to a fence, Russell was found hanging out at his trailer with his girlfriend. When he was arrested for attempted murder, he made no comment except that he wanted a lawyer. While he was being taken to the station, a couple of officers stayed behind to talk to his girlfriend. When they asked what the pair had been doing two nights earlier, 
She immediately answered that they had spent the whole night together watching television with Aaron and his girlfriend. Except the officers knew that Russell had been arrested after getting into the fight with the tire slashers. They knew right away that she was lying to cover for Russell. She was arrested on the spot. Two days later, Aaron was released from the hospital and immediately arrested on charges of attempted murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. In a cruel irony, Aaron and Matthew had actually spent time in the same hospital room before Matthew was transported to the trauma center in Colorado. When they spoke to Aaron's girlfriend, she had a lot more to say. She told the officers that Aaron wasn't home that night when she went to bed. At about 1 a.m., she remembered waking up to a strange noise, and when she investigated, she found him climbing in through the kitchen window. He was completely covered in blood. When she confronted him, he said that he and Russell had gotten into a fight and killed somebody. She was so shocked that she didn't believe him. She knew Aaron was a user, and he was probably high on meth and having hallucinations or something, so she didn't say anything more about it. I guess she thought the blood all over him was just a hallucination too, right? At Aaron's house, police also recovered a gun, which was covered in blood. When it was sent to the lab, they confirmed that the blood belonged to Matthew. Who would have guessed that Russell and Aaron would turn out to be idiots? After the police told Aaron what his girlfriend had revealed about that night, he confessed to everything. He told them exactly what had happened that night. Well, as much as you can trust the recollection of a murderer. Unsurprisingly, he tried to blame Matthew for his own murder. His version was that he and Russell had gone to the bar that night for drinks when they saw Matthew hanging out with his friends. Aaron commented that right away he knew they were all gay. They waited until Matthew was alone, and then they decided to pretend to be gay so they could lure him outside. Initially, the plan was just to rob him. They figured he had money and by the looks of him, he might have some drugs they could steal. To make sure that Matthew wouldn't get suspicious, they told him that they were driving to have sex somewhere even though Matthew wanted to go home. But here's where he pointed the finger at Matthew. Aaron told investigators that Matthew had sexually assaulted him in the back of the truck and that was what caused him to snap. If Matthew hadn't tried to have sex with him, then they would have just robbed him and beaten the gay out of him and left him to go on his way. Right. When Matthew died, both Aaron and Russell's charges were upgraded from attempted murder to first-degree murder, which made them eligible for the death penalty. Their girlfriends were charged with obstruction of justice and being accessories after the fact. Both of the women had helped the men get rid of the evidence of what they had done to Matthew and had tried to deceive officers with fake alibis. Russell was offered a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against Aaron, which would spare him from the death penalty. He quickly agreed and revealed that he had held Matthew down while Aaron had laid into him with his fists and the butt of his gun. Aaron, therefore, was Matthew's killer. Russell's plea gave him a sentence of two consecutive life terms. During Aaron's trial, he blamed his violent and neglectful upbringing for his actions. He was reportedly kept locked in the basement for much of his early years so that he would stay out of trouble. Aaron went on to claim that he was sexually abused by a male neighbor when he was seven and had a confusing experience with a male cousin when he was 15. 
He also repeated his claims that Matthew had sexually assaulted him, which had caused temporary insanity, and therefore it was Matthew's fault that he had been killed. He claimed, quote, I don't know what happened. I blacked out. I felt possessed. It felt like I left my body. It's like I could see what was going on, but somebody else was doing it. Both of the men's girlfriends testified in Aaron's trial. Despite initially telling police officers that the men were high on drugs that night, on the stand they confirmed that the men were actually completely sober. The women also torpedoed Aaron's defense that the murder was a spur-of-the-moment break from reality when in fact he had talked about posing as a homosexual and robbing Matthew before the attack took place. Aaron's own confession confirmed that the attack was premeditated. During his police interview, he had said, quote, We really had no intention of hurting this guy. It was to take him out and scare him and take his wallet and leave. Meanwhile, protesters from Westboro Baptist Church showed their revolting faces again and every day of the trial they picketed on the courthouse steps where the trial was being held. On the stand, the medical examiner explained in graphic detail how every blow Matthew had experienced would have affected him. When asked if Matthew had suffered, he could only say that he didn't know for sure, but it was likely that Matthew had spent those 15 hours in pain as he had never completely lost consciousness. Ultimately, the judge rejected Aaron's gay panic defense and he was found guilty. While the judge was considering whether to impose the death penalty, Matthew's parents brokered a deal which meant that Aaron was given two life sentences with no possibility of parole. This agreement also meant that Aaron waived his right to appeal. Somehow, even after everything Aaron had put their son through, including blaming him for his own murder and torture, they still had the grace to offer such an agreement, something the members of the Westboro Baptist Church could use as an example. During his sentencing, Aaron addressed Matthew's parents, saying, quote, I really don't know what to say other than that I'm truly sorry to the entire Shepherd family. Never will a day go by that I won't be ashamed for what I have done. Judy and Dennis responded to the comments by saying, quote, I hope you never experience a day or night without experiencing the terror, humiliation, hopelessness, and helplessness my son felt that night. He was my son, my firstborn, but more, he was my friend, my confidant, my constant reminder of how good life can be. I would like nothing better than to see you die, Mr. McKinney, but now is the time to heal. Every time you wake up in your cell, remember you had the opportunity or the ability to stop your actions that night. Mr. McKinney, you will not become a symbol. Russell's girlfriend was found guilty of being an accessory to the murder, while Aaron's girlfriend pleaded guilty to the charges against her. Even though the trial was over, the Westboro Baptist Church wasn't done with the case. They made repeated applications to the Council of Casper, where Matthew's parents lived, to build a monument, quote, of marble or granite, five or six feet, about 1.8 meters, in height, on which will be a bronze plaque bearing Shepard's picture and the words, quote, Matthew Shepard entered hell October 12, 1998, in defiance of God's warning. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. 
Go fuck yourselves, Westboro Baptist Church. You are a plague on humanity, and the world would be a much better place if every one of your members was replaced by a Matthew Shepard. As a result of Matthew's death, many positive changes have been made to protect members of the LGBTQ community. Campaigns against bigotry have been set up in his name, and politicians and celebrities pledged money towards combating anti-gay hate crimes. Matthew's parents also opened the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which supports members of the community to discuss their sexual orientation and gender challenges in a safe place free of judgment or discrimination. For years, Matthew's murder was considered to be at the center of the gay rights movement in America, and he was viewed as a martyr, a man who had died only because of his sexuality. So it came as a shock to the community and to Matthew's family when a book titled The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard, was released which painted an entirely different picture of what had led to his murder. The book was released in 2013, 15 years after Matthew's murder. The author is an investigative journalist by the name of Steven Jimenez who said that he spent 13 years interviewing upwards of 100 people who were connected to the case. In the book, Stephen tabled the idea that rather than being killed because he was gay, Matthew was actually murdered over drugs. And rather than Aaron and Russell being completely unknown to him, they were in fact acquaintances who had known each other long before Aaron chose to murder him. From the book's perspective, Matthew's story goes more like this. Matthew had become addicted to crystal meth and had begun to dabble in heroin. To fund his habit, he had begun to deal meth, and when that wasn't enough, he had begun to sell his body for sexual services. Stephen spoke to various people who claimed that far from being strangers, Aaron had actually had sexual encounters with Matt in the past and was pimped out alongside him to pay for his drug habit. Stephen asserted that the murder was carried out so that Aaron and Russell could get their hands on Matthew's meth stash, which they believed was worth $10,000. That's why they left him and were headed to his house when they came across the guys slashing tires. The officer that had arrested Aaron that day after the fight was quoted in the book as saying, I believe to this day that McKinney and Henderson were trying to find Matthew's house so they could steal his drugs. He was fairly well known in the Laramie community that McKinney wouldn't be the one that was striking out of a sense of homophobia. Some of the officers I worked with had caught him in a sexual act with another man, so it didn't fit. None of that made any sense. This perspective presented two problems. Firstly, it would mean that the two knew each other before that night, and secondly, it reduced the likelihood that Aaron was a homophobe which had been central to the characterization of Matthew's murder as a hate crime. Let's be explicitly clear, there is no doubt that Aaron and Russell had murdered Matthew. It was basically their motive that was being questioned. If the original motive wasn't homophobia, then the murder wouldn't have been labeled a hate crime and Matthew wouldn't have been seen as a martyr for gay rights. Unsurprisingly, LGBTQ supporters tore into the book and called Stephen Jimenez a revisionist and a homophobe who was attempting to deny the reality that gay men face in America. There was just one problem to their theory. Stephen is a gay man himself. When Stephen started to receive death threats about the book, he commented, quote, The view was that homophobic rednecks walked into a bar and saw an obviously gay man with money and targeted him and beat him to death for that reason, but that isn't what happened. 
Nothing in this book takes away from the iniquity and brutality of their crime or the culpability of his murderers. But we owe Matthew and other young men like him the truth. Aaron and Matthew had a friendship. They'd been involved sexually. They'd bought and sold drugs from each other. That complicates the original story of two strangers walking into a bar and targeting Matthew, someone they did not know because he was gay. A gay rights activist was also quoted as saying, Keeping Matthew as the poster boy of gay hate crime and ignoring the full tragedy of his story has been the agenda of many gay movement leaders. Ignoring the tragedies of Matthew's life prior to his murder will do nothing to help other young men in our community who were sold for sex, ravaged by drugs, and generally exploited. They will remain invisible and lost. Matthew's parents were asked to comment on the claims Stephen made in his book, but they instead issued a statement from the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which basically said that they won't respond to rumors. And there is no evidence to suggest that Stephen's claims are anything but that. The book does not offer any concrete evidence and does not match what Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson said in their confessions. I also find it strange that if Russell and Aaron were on their way to get $10,000 worth of drugs, they would stop that quest in order to pick a fight with some random people slashing tires. Matthew's parents continue to campaign for the rights and protections of members of the LGBTQ community. Matthew's killers were never able to be charged with a hate crime as there was no criminal statute in Wyoming for such a charge. After his death, a bill was introduced that defined certain attacks motivated by identifying characteristics as hate crimes. This would cover religion, disability, or sexual orientation, however the bill tied and therefore failed. After the failure, President Clinton took up the fight and attempted to have hate crime legislation include gay and lesbian individuals and those with disabilities. That was rejected in 1999. In 2000, both houses of Congress passed the legislation, but it was later rejected during conference committees. It took until 2007, nearly 10 years after Matthew's death, for the Matthew Shepard Act to receive bipartisan support and pass the House of Representatives. By then, President Bush was in power and he publicly indicated that he might veto the act if it ever came across his desk. True to his word, he vetoed the bill later that same year. A year later, it failed again even when it was just attached as part of a Department of Defense bill. President Obama was elected a year later and voiced his support for the bill. When it was raised in the House of Representatives in 2009, the representative from North Carolina said that calling Matthew's death a hate crime was a hoax. Matthew's mom was sitting in the House gallery when the representative made this remark. In the end, it was President Obama who managed to get the bill across the line and in 2009, the Matthew Shepard Act was signed into law. As for the monsters, Aaron refused to talk to the media for years, but in 2009 he gave a 10-hour interview which was released alongside the movie The Laramie Project. In it, he commented that he had no remorse and he confirmed that the murder was prompted by homophobia. He said, quote, the night I did it, I did have hatred for homosexuals. Russell, on the other hand, had commented, quote, I think about Matthew every single day of my life. I think about him and every single one of those days that I've had that he hasn't had. His family hasn't had. His friends haven't had. I'm so, so ashamed I was ever part of this. 
Matthew's parents had decided not to bury him after his funeral, as they were worried that the same hateful bigots who thought it was okay to protest at his funeral would also desecrate his grave. Because they would have. Because they're terrible people. Instead, they kept his ashes at home with them for more than 20 years until he was finally interred at the Washington National Cathedral in 2018 along other names like Helen Keller and Woodrow Wilson. If this story has taught us anything, it's that there's more to being a monster than just being a killer. Russell and Aaron are monsters for sure, but if you're picketing someone's funeral and rejoicing in their murder, yeah, you're a monster too. If you're a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-843. 4564, or go to lgbthotline.org. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.